This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Beckel Spinax, as well as a bunch of dinosaur news. And just a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters. Thanks for your support. It really helps us go from week to week and we really appreciate it. If you listen to this podcast and you enjoy it, then please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. First in the news is a... An article published in the journal PLOS One, written by Kohei Tanaka and others, titled Eggshell Porosity Provides Insight on Evolution of Nesting Dinosaurs. We've talked a lot about a similar article in episode 50, and that was all about titanosaur eggs and the porosity that the eggshells have and how that can demonstrate whether the eggs were buried or if they were in an open nest or exactly how they were cared for. So I'm not going to go into too much detail about the science behind that right now. But this article expands on what they talked about there a lot, because now rather than just talking about titanosaurs, they're talking about 120 extant, meaning not extinct, archosaur species, as well as 29 archosaur extinct taxa. And much like the titanosaur group, they also found a link between the porosity in the eggshells and the nest type. They're a little bit more specific, though, about their probability of the conclusions. So in the previous article, we just said they think that titanosaurs bury their eggs. In this one, they said they're about 90% sure that titanosaurs covered their eggs, about 90% sure that Lorinhonosaurus, which was a dinosaur from the late Jurassic that was a pretty big theropod, probably about 24 feet or 8 meters long as an adult, so there's about a 90% chance that that one covered its eggs as well. Then they said that Oviraptorosaur was about 50-50, whether it covered them or had them in an open nest. They said Trudon was about 64% chance that it was in an open nest. And that different extinct moa bird species, so the moas are those birds that were in New Zealand that were really big, they said there was about a 64 to 76% chance that the different species were in an open nest. So overall, they are pointing towards that trend that modern birds use open nests, whereas some dinosaurs obviously had covered nests. And they said, quote, The evolution of open nests and brooding behavior may have played a key role in allowing Manoraptor and theropods, 
including birds, to exploit a greater diversity of locations for nesting. Nest location for covered nesters, i.e. crocodilians and megapodes, is restricted to the ground because heat and humidity is required from the nesting material substrate for incubation. Conversely, reliance on body heat for egg incubation in fully open nesters probably freed manoraptorans to exploit new environments to build their nests, like trees, cliffs, caves. Furthermore, this greater nesting freedom may have lessened the odds of nesting failure due to predation, flooding, or torrential rainfall, factors commonly adversely affecting the hatching success of covered nests on the ground, and consequently may have played a role in the evolutionary success and adaptive radiation of Manoraptorans." End quote. So, in case you are wondering, Manoraptora is a clad of theropoda that includes Deinonychosauria, Ovaraptorosauria, Therizinosauria, and Aviale, which includes modern birds. So, it's a lot of those groups that we think are most likely to have evolved into birds, and then obviously modern birds as well. So Martin also said, quote, Loose vegetation piled atop a buried nest can have a lot of airflow through it, allowing eggs to have relatively small pores, whereas eggs buried in soil or similar materials might not breathe as well and thus require larger pores, end quote. I think that is speaking a little bit about why they say they were 90% sure of something or 50-50 on others. It's because it's not as simple as just burying an egg or not burying it. Sometimes they put some vegetation on top of it or had like a hybrid strategy where maybe some of them would bury them and some wouldn't, depending on the circumstances. So it's nice to see that they expanded the information just past titanosaurs into other types of dinosaurs too in their nesting behavior because it does have a lot to do with how the parents would have behaved around their eggs. If they're buried, you don't really have to stay there. They probably just leave. But if you're brooding them, you got to hang around. And next in the news, thanks to Marky from Facebook and Chris from Twitter for sharing the links to this story with us. More than 100 sauropod tracks from the Middle Jurassic have been found on the Isle of Skye by researchers from the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Steve Brissett led the team, and it's an exciting find because not many fossils have been found yet from the Middle Jurassic period, which was 174 to 164 million years ago. But a lot happened during that time. Pangaea started to break apart into the continents we live on today, desert areas became flooded and tropical, and many animals either died out or adapted, such as new reptiles spreading out in the oceans, mammals rapidly evolving, birds possibly first took wing then, and tyrannosaurs and stegosaurs started to appear then. There's a lot of fossils found from the early and late Jurassic, according to Steve Brousset, though, which makes it frustrating to not know as much about the middle Jurassic. And according to the BBC article, which is this wonderful kind of mix of film and imagery and text, and we'll be posting the link on our blog, uh, quote, Sky is one of the few places in the world that has fossil-bearing rocks from the period, meaning new discoveries made here have the potential to answer some of the major questions scientists have about how life forms evolved the way they did, end quote. The first dinosaurs found in this area was in 1982 of an iguanodon-like ornithopod footprint. It was 18 and a half inches or 47 meters long. And since then, bones of sauropods, theropods, and an armored 
Thyreophorin, which is a group that includes stegosaurs and ankylosaurs, have been found. And in 2002, a local woman found a small ornithopod footprint while walking her dog. Fifteen other footprints were found, all in the original rock strata, which makes it easier to figure out when exactly they're from. Neil Clark from the Hunterian Museum in Glasgow said he thought they were from a dinosaur similar to Megalosaurus. A lot of the finds on Skye have been found by Dugal Ross, who has been collecting fossils on the island for nearly 40 years and set up the Staffen Museum. One fossil he found, according to BBC, was the footprints of an adult theropod with 10 smaller individual footprints, which suggests a parent that took care of its children. So the big find on the Isle of Skye was Steve Brousset, Tom Challens, and their team, which included Shana Montanari, who... We talk a lot about her article, she writes great ones on Forbes, and Mark Wilkinson were looking for more ichthyosaur fossils from the Middle Jurassic, but they ended up coming across some strange lumps in the ground, which were hundreds of sauropod footprints, some of them up to 28 inches or 70 centimeters across in Duntulm on the Isle of Skye, which is an area known for footprints. These footprints formed trackways, not they weren't just isolated footprints from back legs and front legs, and because these footprints were in the rocks where the original prints were made and not broken off and detached from their original site, they can tell paleontologists a lot about the sauropod's environment, such as how they behaved and possibly even how they changed. These footprints were probably from primitive sauropods. They had large thumb claws and straight digits on their feet, but the team needs to study the prints more to determine exactly what type of sauropods they were. Right now, they estimate they're similar to the group's Breviaropus and Parabrontopus. These are both ichnogenuses, which is defined as a taxon based on the fossilized work of an organism. Maybe you recall in episode two when we interviewed Dr. Anthony J. Martin, he's an ichnologist, and he studies not the fossils of dinosaurs, but things that they left behind, such as footprints. So what's really interesting about this discovery is to give a little bit of history. Scientists originally thought that sauropods were semi-aquatic because they were too heavy for land and that they spent a lot of their time in swamps. And we've talked about in previous episodes that uh, brachiosaurus, for example, scientists thought they lived in swamps or hung out in swamps. But then in the 1960s and 70s, paleontologists learned more about sauropod posture and growth and then concluded, no, they were actually land animals. But... These newly found sauropod footprints in the Isle of Skye were from what was a marine lagoon at the time. And this has led Steve Prusset and his team to rethink how sauropods lived. They wrote in their paper in the Scottish Journal of Geology that these footprints provide evidence that sauropods lived in a submerged lagoon for many generations, and these lagoons could have helped them maybe cool down or protected them against predators. The site of the trackways, therefore, is pretty important, and it will probably be pretty eye-opening in terms of how sauropods lived and how animals in the Middle Jurassic lived. And like Sabrina said, their internet page about this that I think the BBC hosts is really awesome. It's got cool little animations of dinosaurs and lots of videos and a lot of cool stuff going on. So if you're looking for something to look at online, definitely check it out. Last week, Sabrina mentioned Neil deGrasse Tyson talking a little bit about the good dinosaur, but I want to go into a little bit more depth about it. We briefly mentioned that, you know, we think that maybe humans could have coexisted with dinosaurs, maybe not. It's kind of hard to tell. And Neil deGrasse Tyson, if you're not familiar, is an astrophysicist and a 
renowned skeptic. You might know him from his narration of the show Cosmos. He often reviews the science of movies, mostly to discuss what might have really happened, and it's kind of a fun way to spread scientific awareness. Some people find it super critical because you end up, you know, analyzing movies like The Good Dinosaur for scientific accuracy, <laughs> but I think it's a lot of fun. Neil deGrasse Tyson also mentioned that mammals would have been pretty small, and they probably would have stayed small if dinosaurs were around, but he did come up with one alternative that I hadn't heard, and that's that if dinosaurs went extinct on one continent, then maybe humans could have evolved there. But unless it was on Australia, they would have eventually later merged, and then you would have had this conflict of dinosaurs and humans that humans almost certainly would have lost, unless we got super advanced first. There's only really one place where that's possible, and that's Australia. <laughs> Where they wouldn't have merged because Australia has just kind of been sitting on its own for such a long time that if dinosaurs had gone extinct there, then humans could have evolved and you could imagine a scenario where the first people got on boats and went to like, say, China and now there's dinosaurs everywhere and what do you do? It'd be kind of fun. Also, if mammals were in South America, humans might have evolved there also and South America was separate from the rest of the world until about three million years ago when there was this thing called the Great American Interchange. And at that point, all of the North American and really the rest of the world, because they were linked by that land bridge and, you know, other small swims and various connections. So basically the rest of the world other than Australia was populating North America and then South America was its own thing. So when Panama formed, they all kind of battled and North America ended up winning a lot of it. I'll talk about that a little bit more later. In one side note though, in The Good Dinosaur they did show this really cool giant snake and it still had little tiny arms and legs on it, which I thought was a fun little addition they had in there I forgot to mention last time. Just to add on to more of The Good Dinosaur, we mentioned in the last episode about dinosaur attractions already in the Disney parks. And Disney's blog recently posted a more extensive list of where you can find dinosaurs around different Disney areas. So examples include Gertie, which is a nod to the 1914 film, at Disney's Hollywood Studios where you can buy ice cream. There's Ellen's Energy Adventure in Epcot. It's a 45-minute multimedia show that goes through Ellen DeGeneres' subconscious and involves animatronic dinosaurs. The Dinosaur Ride in the Animal Kingdom which is a dinosaur version of the Dumbo ride in Disneyland, where in this case you sit in a little triceratops and then you can control going up and down while you ride around in a circle. There's the T-Rex fossil that's part of the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad ride. There's a boneyard at the Animal Kingdom, which is a play space designed to look like a dinosaur dig site, and a T-Rex restaurant in Disney Springs, which is an area of Disney World, where diners can experience meteor showers while they eat, and they have the chance to build their own dinosaurs like Build-A-Bear, but it's called Build-A-Dino next door. Next is a quick little note that the Smithsonian Magazine put out, and it's about a fossilized baby dinosaur that was found near a group of eggs in China nicknamed Baby Louie. It was found back in 1993, but fossilized about 66 million years ago. And once it was found, it was smuggled out of China and sold on the black market. And it kind of moved around a little bit until in 2001, it was purchased by the Indianapolis Children's Museum. And 
Then in 2013, it finally got sent back to the Henan Geological Museum, which we've mentioned before, which is near where this dinosaur was found. And it's interesting. There were people that were interested in the fossil, but since it wasn't really a legal fossil, they don't like to write about it. We mentioned in a different episode, one that got returned before anyone would really publish about it. And that was true in this case, too. And now that it's back in that Chinese museum, they've indicated that they think the baby dinosaur is probably a pretty large oviraptorid, possibly about the size of Gigantoraptor. In our last couple tidbits of news, on March 19th, 2016, Jurassic World, the exhibition, will be opening up at the Melbourne Museum in Australia. And quick thanks to my coworker Astrid, who lives in Melbourne, and she's the one who sent me this link. Jack Horner helped to create the exhibition, and you can travel to Isla Nubar and visit the Hammond Creation Lab, see a Brachiosaurus and T-Rex, and learn about top-secret projects. The exhibit only lasts until October 9th of next year, so if you're in the area, make sure to check it out. In the UK, on June 7th and 8th of 2016, the Dinosaur Zoo Show, which is an international show, will be coming to the Baths Hall in Scunthorpe. The show will feature baby dinosaurs and lifelike dinos, including a T-Rex. And thanks to Jurassic Jones from Twitter for sharing that link with us. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Now on to the dinosaur of the day, Beckel Spinax, and this was a request via Rosetta for her son Ezra Lee, and Beckel Spinax is his new favorite dinosaur, and he even made an awesome sketch that they shared with us. So thanks for that, we really enjoyed it. The name Beckel Spinax means Beckel's spine. It lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now England. Samuel Beckles, a fossil collector, found the first bones near East Sussex in the early 1850s. He sent the bones to Richard Owen, who wrote about them back in 1856. And Richard Owen classified it as Megalosaurus bucklandi, which was the wastebasket taxon at the time, meaning they didn't really know for sure what it was. And Richard Owen had Joseph Dinkle make a lithography based on the three back vertebrae that they found with tall spines. This image appeared in an 1884 edition of an 1855 volume of work on British fossils, which has led some people to think that these fossils were found around 1884 instead of the 1850s. Richard Owen thought that the back vertebrae was part of the shoulder, and it's thought that he knew about these bones back in 1853 when he told Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins to give the life-size megalosaur sculpture in Crystal Palace Park a hump on its back. Since Beckel Spinax was discovered very early when paleontologists were first starting to find dinosaurs, that's why Richard Owen assigned it to Megalosaurus and thought that based on this one specimen, Megalosaurus had a hump. Richard Lidecker reclassified the vertebrae as part of Megalosaurus dunkeri in 1888. It's a dinosaur from the Cretaceous named based on a tooth found in Germany. Frederick von Huhn named a separate genus for Megalosaurus dunkeri in 1923, though, called Altaspinax, and that name means high spines. So Megalosaurus dunkeri became Altaspinax dunkeri, and this name was first used in 1939 by Oscar Kuhn. But the tooth, the one tooth found in Germany that Altaspinax was based on, was undiagnostic, so Altaspinax became a nomen dubium, and it was unclear that the three vertebrae that are now associated with Beckel Spinax were related to the Altaspinax tooth. So in 1988, Gregory Paul renamed this Acrocanthosaurus with a question mark Altaspinax. It had the species name uh, same as the old genus name to show that they both referred to this vertebrae. And Gregory Paul renamed Altaspinax as Acrocanthosaurus based on the fact that Acrocanthosaurus had high neural spines that also lived in the early Cretaceous. But he wasn't completely sure about this classification, hence the question mark. And because of this, in 1991, George Olszewski gave it a new genus name in honor of Samuel Beckles, and it became Beckelspinax altaspinax. Other names such as Altaspinax altaspinax and Altaspinax lidecker huniorum are junior synonyms, but they refer to the same three back vertebrae material. George Olszewski said that the fossils were synraptorid. Those are allosauroid theropods similar to synraptor, and that's why he renamed it to Beckelspinax. Based on Acrocanthosaurus, Gregory Paul estimated that Beckelspinax weighed about one ton and was shorter than Acrocanthosaurus atokensis, which he estimated was 26 feet or 8 meters long. The three back vertebrae of Beckelspinax have about 14 inches or 35 centimeter high neural spines. And Ralph Molnar said that the two spines closest to the skull were fused. The closest spine is about two thirds the height of the other two spines, and it looks like it was broken off and that the second spine partly overgrows this gap. So perhaps Beckelspinax had an injury and then the wound closed from behind. 
But in 2003, Darren Nishgave said that this gap was natural, and he said that Richard Owen had written about large depressions on the spine sides and said that they were from pneumatization, which are air cavities in the tissue, which was the first time this was seen in a dinosaur. Although in 2006, it was found that Christian Eric Hermann von Mayer had actually found this earlier in 1837 with Sorcia in general. In 2010, a concavenator back crest with only two high vertebrae was found, and that showed that maybe Beckel Spinax's spine was complete and did not suffer any injuries. Because only three spines have been found for Beckel Spinax, and that's all that's been found for Beckel Spinax, it's hard to know exactly how the dinosaur looked. Though there are theropods such as Acrocanthosaurus and Spinosaurus that have high spines, and then Concavenator had a small hump with just the two vertebrae, and also Metriacanthosaurus from the Jurassic period in England was a theropod with large neural spines, so we can kind of guess based on those dinosaurs. Concavenator is a cousin of Acrocanthosaurus, but it was found in Spain. Because scientists think that Beckel Spinax resembles Concavenator, it was probably also a Carcharodontosaur with a sail back. Though Concavenator and Beckel Spinax live 10 million years apart, Natius has suggested the possibility that they are actually the same genus, and that Concavenator corcovatus may be Beckel Spinax corcovatus, but without knowing more about how Beckel Spinax looked, this is hard to say for sure. Based on Acrocanthosaurus and Concavenator, Beckel Spinax was a large predator with distinctive ridges and sails on its back. These ornaments may have been for display or a sign of dominance or maybe even a way for the dinosaurs to know that they belonged to the same species, though again, nobody knows for sure. Beckel Spinax probably ate small to medium-sized sauropods based on where and when it lived. And Ezra, I know you asked how exactly Beckel Spinax interacted with other theropods and if it was a main predator and how it cared for its young, but unfortunately there's just not enough evidence at this time to know the exact answers to these questions. So unfortunately we can't answer, but if more fossils are found of Beckel Spinax in the future, then we'll know more and we'll keep you up to date. Originally, Olszewski assigned Beckel Spinax to Eustropto spondylidae, but in 2003, Nash assigned it to Allosauroidea. Other researchers say that it's actually Tentanura incertacetis, and incertacetis means that it's unclear where it falls in the group. So I'm just going to give you a background on all of these groups, starting with Allosauroidea. And Allosauroidea is a superfamily that contains four families. There's Metriacanthosauridae, Allosauridae, Carcharodontosauridae, and Neovenatoridae. The oldest Allosauroidea dinosaurs are from the early Middle Jurassic in what is now China, and they lived through the late Cretaceous. They had long, narrow skulls, three fingers on each hand, and horns or ornamental crests on their heads, and Allosaurus is the best known of this group. Tetanura is a clad whose name means stiff tails, and Jacques Gauthier named Tetanure in 1986, and they include theropods more closely related to modern birds than to ceratosaurus. They include most theropods as well as birds. They appeared in the earlier Middle Jurassic, and there were large spinosaurids and allosaurids that lived in the late Jurassic and early Cretaceous, particularly Gondwana, but they died out before the end of the Cretaceous. That may be because of competition from ablosaurids and tyrannosaurids. And now modern birds are the only living animals in the Tentanure clad. Carcharodontosaurids are a family named by Ernst Stromer in 1931 to include a new species of Carcharodontosaurus. In 1995, 
Gigantosaurus was added to the family, and some paleontologists consider Acrocanthosaurus part of this family. The name means shark-toothed lizards, and they were carnivorous theropods. The largest were 46 feet or 14 meters long, and the smallest were 20 feet or 6 meters long. Spinosaurids and Carcharodontosaurids were the largest predators in the early and middle Cretaceous in Gondwana. And our fun fact of the day goes back to the formation of the Isthmus of Panama that I alluded to earlier. Specifically, the formation of the Isthmus of Panama is probably the most important geological event since dinosaurs went extinct. It caused a lot of really significant changes all the way around the world. It both separated the Caribbean Sea from the Pacific, causing an increase in diversification in those two bodies of water, while simultaneously merging North and South America, which obviously decreased the diversity overall when some of them ate the other ones or <laughs> otherwise outcompeted them. Many North American animals forced their way south into South America, and a lot of the South American animals went extinct. But some of the South American animals actually made it into North America and did pretty well, like armadillos are one example. The formation of this isthmus also created the Gulf Stream, which raised the temperature of Europe and eastern North America and obviously made it a nicer place for humans to live. It also increased the salinity of the Atlantic, and now the Atlantic is actually significantly more salty than the Pacific Ocean, which causes other changes in the marine life there. There are some arguments to when exactly the isthmus formed, since it started as a series of islands, and then the rest of the land mass is sediment that filled in the gaps between the islands, but it was completed somewhere between 2 and 15 million years ago. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and again, if you wish to support us, then please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again, and until next time. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader